Pastor Paul here. So glad that you're connecting with us. If you're new to this, we're taking about a month to walk through the Gospel of Matthew. Seemed like a great companion piece to our study of 1 Peter as a church on Sunday mornings because as we've seen, Peter plays an incredibly prominent role in Matthew's Gospel. And if you read Peter's letters closely, you can see uh, the event three years of Jesus's ministry and life. They've made this sort of indelible imprint on Peter and he is just drawing from them. And, and so we're now up to Matthew chapter 22. If you have your Bibles and I'm just, I know that you do, then open those up, um, get your finger on the text because we're gonna be in the word and moving around here in Matthew 22 this morning. Let me pray for us. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's commit our time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we're coming to you this morning asking for new mercies. Lord, your mercies and grace for yesterday were for yesterday, and now we need them for today. Lord, we, we don't want to run on borrowed capital. We want to be walking in moment-by-moment um, moment dependence upon you through the power of your Spirit. So may you use this time in your word to set our hearts fully on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, here we are in Matthew 22. This is the last week of Jesus' life. There is uh, this intensification of conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders that ultimately we know is going to culminate a few days later in his death and on a cross. You know, what's interesting about these particular chapters as we get closer and closer to Jesus's death and he gets more and more and more embroiled in debate and controversy and engagement with the religious leaders is how many times Jesus quotes scripture. Now, what's interesting about this is that, that Jesus, um, is quoting the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, because that's what that was the excuse me that was the the scripture, uh, the version of the Old Testament that was in use with the people, and this tells us a couple of things. Okay, and and some of this is gets deep in the Trinitarian theology, but a lot of times we have this idea that Jesus, being obviously God. Um, you know, of course he's going to know the Old Testament. Of course he's going to be able to, he's omniscient, all-knowing, knows what's happening at any given point in time. He, he inspired these scriptures, well, which is true. But on the other hand, we can't discount the humanity of Jesus. He, was, he is just as much man as he is God, which means that when he was born a man, he had to engage in a process, just like we do, of learning to do things. He had to learn his tie shoes. He had to learn to feed himself. Um, we see this in, in Luke's gospel. Remember when Jesus, as a 12-year-old, is in the temple, and he is engaging the religious leaders, and he is asking them questions. And there is this sense in which, even from an early age, Jesus had this posture of learning, and in other words, the knowledge of the scriptures, and again, there's a lot of mystery involved here. This, his knowledge of the scriptures was just not imparted to him by osmosis, by virtue of him being God. 
from the human perspective, he had to learn, he had to grow, and he had to assimilate these scriptures um, into his life as a as a man, as a human being. And again, there's a lot of mystery wrapped up in here, but I, but we can't discount the the humanity of Jesus here. Now I'm bringing all of this up to communicate that. It's interesting that as things intensify, as the pressures brought to bear, as, as there's engagement around crucial theological issues, that Jesus's, um, you know, his, his knowledge of scripture, his, his drawing upon scripture, it's more than just Bible drill where he has a few verses memorized. The Bible is literally bleeding through his, his soul. There is a sense in which he is so familiar uh, and such a master of the material that he doesn't have to stop and ponder, hmm, I wonder how God's word applies to this area of my life. It's instinctive, it's intuitive, it's natural. And there's a real model here for us, church, that, that we um, are going to spend the rest of our lives, should be spending the rest of our lives becoming masters of the word of God so that, as Paul says, whether it's in season or out of season, we are prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within us. That doesn't change. Um, we never master um, the word of God in this life. I think even in heaven, we'll have all eternity to unpack the mysteries that we see in God's word that testify to, to God. And I want to just point you to some examples in Matthew 22, particularly as these religious leaders um, are are intent on entrapping Jesus to to show that he is that he that you know there's contradictions in his teaching or or catch him in his in his words and kind of that gotcha culture. And you can see this. Look at verse 15 in chapter 22. It says, "Then the Pharisees went." and plotted how to entangle him in his words, in other words, to trip him up. Um, we see in verse 23, the same day the Sadducees came to him. So everybody's less coming at him left and right. And I want you to notice, particularly this morning, how he's drawing from uh, the, the scriptures in the way that he's engaging these things. Okay, so let's, let's look first of all at, the, at his engagement with the Sadducees in verse 23. They're coming to him. And they're asking him um, this hypothetical question that's a little ridiculous. Uh, and they're drawing upon the Old Testament law, which talks about the, um, the law of, that, that pertain to if you were a, 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 a married and your husband died, um, it was important to think about marrying back into the family, his brother or something, so as to per, per, perpetuate the ongoing line. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament. And here they go through this kind of ridiculous scenario to say, well, you know, seven times uh, this woman was married and remarried because her husband kept dying, these poor guys, this poor woman. Uh, in heaven, who is she married to? Now, understand something. The reason this is uh, a tricky question is that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, okay? They, I'm not, I'm, I'm not an expert on, on what exactly they thought about the afterlife but they were using this as an example to say, see, see, Jesus, this is ridiculous, okay, that, that we can think about this resurrection because how's a resurrection going to work? How, how is life going to be replicated eternally the way it is here? 
And interesting, look at what Jesus says in verse 29. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, what, what does he mean by this? Well, one, he, in denying the resurrection as the Sadducees did, um, they were neglecting the most obvious of, of realities that's present in the scriptures. And this is what I mean about Jesus just being so immersed in the word of God that it just emanates from him. See, there's no mention explicitly of a resurrection or an afterlife in the, in the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And those were the five books that the Sadducees granted unique authority. Everything else was just kind of secondary. It was the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and that they, that they gravitated to. And because there's no mention of the resurrection here, then surely uh, there is no resurrection. But Jesus, interestingly, refers to the Pentateuch when he says, Have you not read... What was said to you by God, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so there is a sense in which he shows them that even in their own scriptures, it's a natural inference to say there is a resurrection because God never says, I was the God of Jacob, but I am right now, still, you know, he still is the God of Abraham, Isaac. And Jacob, he is the God of not the dead, but of the living. And obviously they neither knew the scriptures nor the power okay, of God. Because Jesus says, listen, if you understood the Old Testament correctly, you would know that, that when there is an eternal life being given to the people of God, they, they transcend the earthly institutions. Um, there's not going to be marriage any longer. They're going to we're going to be like the angels, meaning we're eternal beings. We're not going to be able um, um, to sin, and we're going to be with God forever. And Jesus is saying, if if you had only known your your Bible, then you would know these things, right? And and he's he's flipping this around, and it's a pretty powerful refutation. And it says, when they heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Yes, I bet, okay. Now look down in verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, he had dropped the mic on the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, again, to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now that's, that's like asking a parent, right? Who's your favorite child? Uh, there's. You know, every answer is wrong. Every answer is right. What, what, what are you going to say to that? And amazingly, Jesus draw distills all of the Old Testament law down to two references. The first one is in verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's, of course, from the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So he first says, love the Lord, love God, honor him, worship him. That's the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that is a quotation from Leviticus 19. Now, oftentimes you hear me joking about, well, maybe we're going to preach through a series in Leviticus or something like that. Well, that is a joke because it's, a, it's an amazing book. And here Jesus quotes Leviticus in saying that the, the actual, one, the second greatest commandment next to the Shema is found in Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. And look at verse 40. 
on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Okay, do you see again what he's done? He's called to testify in a moment of need. He has the scriptures at his fingertips. Now look, one last episode here. Verse 41, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, and that can never be good, right? <laughs> They've been asking Jesus a question. He asked them a question, and he says, who do you think, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now understand, um, they believe the Messiah was coming, and they believed that he was going to be the son and the descendant of David, which was true. Jesus was that. But then Jesus says, how, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Again, it would be like you and I calling our children father or mother. It's like that doesn't, that doesn't fit, but yet that that's, that's how Jesus describes the Messiah, or, or David describes the Messiah in the Psalms, that the Lord, you know, David is answering to the Lord, and the Lord says to David's Lord. So how, how can this son of David be also the Lord of David? And obviously, they had no answer to that. Book, verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. And there is, this, there is this sense in which Jesus says you, you can't answer these questions because your knowledge of the Word of God, not just from a Bible drill knowledge standpoint, um, but from an immersion marinating in the Word of God, letting it ooze kind of, if I can use that analogy, from you, living in it, letting God's word make room for itself in your heart because, because you don't do that, you don't understand this. But I think Jesus is implying that if you just knew the scriptures, okay, you would understand it is both, that the king, coming king, is the, is the son of David, but he's also the son of God. He is also Lord. If you knew, I imagine Jesus could be saying, if you knew Daniel 7, you would know that this son of man who's coming is not just coming on a horse um, to rescue you from an earthly perspective. He's coming on the clouds to bring uh, righteousness and, and judgment and justice with him. So again, we, we see what we can learn from this text is that we never outgrow our need okay, um, for the living word of God. And that if Jesus, and this is, again, Trinitarian mystery, subordinated himself, okay, to the word, okay, um, then, of course, no less for us. And now when we say subordinated himself to the word, we mean it's both things. He both inspired the word, okay, it is his word, and it's true and reflective, and in his humanity, he's lived under that. And that should be a model for us. And so um, that's what we're trying to do in these devotionals every day is again, just getting us in the habit where we can work through chunks of scripture, make commentary on them, and then asking God just to permeate our souls with them. All right, that's where we are, Matthew 22. So tomorrow, Matthew 23, um, the seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Here, the, the, the Pharisees are completely silent. And it's Jesus now who does all the talking. 
and we'll find out what he says tomorrow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to walk and increase and grow in our knowledge of you. And Lord, the only way we can do that is by being in your word, which testifies to you. So Father, now we um, ask that you'd go before us today. We pray that you would bring the scriptures to our minds, our hearts, in our time of need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us. Same time, same station. Manana.